Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be exploring a topic in the history of epidemiology and medicine and uh, and a precursor to modern germ theory. Yes, we're talking about uh, miasma theory, which uh, this is this is something that has has long fascinated me just as a if nothing else, just as a, an idea. This, uh, I, I'm just struck by this vision of bad air rising up out of some gothic cemetery and, uh, and, and, and fearful humans running for their lives to avoid that air touching them and turning them into ghouls or something, you know? Yeah. So if you're not familiar with this, uh, this long-running hypothesis in human history, I think we should set the scene for you at the time of the Black Death in Europe. All right, let's go there. Okay. Bring out your dead. Bring them out. So in the late 1340s, the first outbreak of the Black Death fell on Europe. And it was, I think we can say without a doubt, the greatest human disaster that had ever come to the continent. Yes. Right. Uh, somewhere between a third and two-thirds of the entire population died. Communities and entire towns were depopulated. People didn't know what to do with all of the dead and dying people around them. And perhaps the worst part was... Nobody knew what caused it. Now, when we have a, you know, a, a pandemic, at least we can, we feel like we have some sense of control. You know, I mean, just many people can still die from pandemics, but you can understand, okay, there, there is an organism causing this disease. Maybe medical science can do something about it. We're working on the problem. But at the time, you just, you had a limited understanding of how illness and disease worked. And beyond that, you would have to turn to supernatural explanations or perhaps the appearance of, uh, of knotted rats in the, the ruins of a house, that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, actually what might be worse than people not knowing what caused the plague was that many people thought they knew and almost all of them were wrong. A little knowledge is a dangerous thing, right? Yeah. So as you might expect, some people simply chalk the disease up to magical punishment sent by God. So in 1349, Archbishop Zouche of York wrote an open letter to his diocese that read as follows, quote, there can be no one who does not know, since it is now public knowledge, how great mortality, pestilence, and infection of the air are now threatening various parts of the world, and especially England, and this is surely caused by the sins of men who, while enjoying good times, forget that such things are the gifts of the Most High Giver. Now, one can be optimistic and say, well, we don't think like that anymore, but... I still see frequent um, uh, clips from television shows of, uh, of of individuals speaking to their congregation, uh, for instance, and saying, oh, well, clearly this is because of our sin, either this disease outbreak or this natural disaster. Clearly, this is the reason that we are suffering. But that's kind of a side tangent. No, I think you're going to have two persistent facts throughout history and continuing into the future. One is the fact that, you know, great calamities befall humankind. Mm -hmm. And the other is the fact that people are always doing something that other people don't like. Right. And so anytime people can connect the two, they're going to try. Right. And then also this this comment, this this confusion of teleological explanations and causative explanations. Right. right yeah. Uh, trying to explain why this happened, why this uh, this this calamity occurred based on a cause and effect scenario, mm -hmm. and then also trying to work it into your worldview in which uh, there is some sort of divine infrastructure in place. Yeah, but then, of course, even at the time, you had some people who tried to come in with their idea of a scientific explanation. They wanted to get to the root cause, right? Mm -hmm. So in 1348, King Philip VI of France wanted to get to the bottom of what was causing the terrible disaster. So he gathered the most learned scholars of the medical faculty of the University of Paris and he charged them with explaining the origins of the Great Death and coming up with solutions to fight it. They came back to him with an answer. On March 20th, 1345, at about one o'clock in the afternoon, something crucial and devastating had happened. 
Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn all lined up in conjunction within the house of Aquarius. Mm. And this event heralded exactly what France was undergoing at the time, because the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn was known to cause death and calamity, and the conjunction of Jupiter and Mars was known to bring a pestilence on the wind. And here you were getting both conjunctions at the same time. In the words of the historian Ole Jürgen Benedictau in his book The Black Death, 1346 to 1353, quote, In this astrological theory of epidemiology, Jupiter was assumed to be warm and humid and to draw malignant vapors both from the ground and from water, while Mars was assumed to be hot and dry and therefore had the capacity to kindle such malignant vapors into infective fire. So they're postulating a cause and effect. The planets lined up. Mm -hmm. And that did something to the Earth that caused these infective vapors to appear. And this was what was causing the plague. Ah, so, so, so basically situations were astrologically just right to draw some sort of disease causing vapor uh, out of the bowels of the Earth. Right. So notice how under this theory, there's really not much you can do to stop the spread of the disease. Yeah, you can't change the right. the, the, the movement of the spheres. Right. You can't eradicate the sickness living in the Earth. You're just left to suffer whatever occurs. Yeah, this is even worse than like the theological judgment, right? Because at least in that case, you'd think, well, maybe we can pray and petition God to not do this to us anymore. Right. You can appeal to God, but you can't appeal to the the, the clockwork uh, movements of the of the solar system. Right. It is a is a pitiless astrological verdict. Uh, but but also, despite being a death by pure act of fate. Benedictao notes that since this theory entailed the more proximate cause of the disease to be something more in the form of malignant vapors rather than just straight up curse from God, some thought that they could help avoid the disease by avoiding those malignant vapors. So like the planets cause the earth to release malignant vapors or release malignant vapors on the earth. So if you can just avoid breathing this stuff in or being exposed to it, then you can avoid the plague. Ah, so just don't go to places where there are bad smells, and therefore you might avoid the particular bad smells that cause disease. Yes, and so this was a thing that you see throughout history, the linking of disease with foul-smelling objects and things like filth and rotting organic matter, uh, which in itself, this kind of avoidance behavior may have sometimes helped people avoid infection, though not necessarily for the reasons they believed. Now, of course, we know today that the Black Death was caused by infectious disease, caused by germs, and in fact, there is actually still an interesting debate. Almost all scientists, I think, agree that the Black Death was caused by bubonic plague or uh, Yersinia pestis. But there have been some rival hypotheses in the past few decades that it was something else, like maybe some kind of viral hemorrhagic fever. Uh, and that topic might be worth a look on its own for a different episode. Someday. Oh, yeah. Well, we, there's always room uh, to discuss more Black Death. But the confusion over the cause of the outbreak, it really... It caused this sense of horror and despair in many writers of the time. Like uh, Petrarch has all this great plague poetry. This just about like, oh, how much worse can things get? It's just going on and on lamenting. I, I don't know why I sound like that. Like I'm <laughs> uh, like calling him out for lamenting the plague. I mean, the plague was really awful. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there was sometimes there were more bodies than anybody could figure out where to put them. And so like the bring out your dead scenario is literally mirroring things that happened in the past. Yes. But I want to take you to another setting during the, the Black Death of the 1340s, that of Catholic Pope Clement VI, who was living in Avignon at the time. Now, you might wonder, wait a minute, why is the Pope living in Avignon? Shouldn't he be, you know, at the Vatican? Shouldn't he be at Rome? Uh, for some complicated political reasons having to do with the French monarchy, there were several popes in the 14th century who lived in Avignon. And so he uh, so Pope Clement VI was pope from 1342 until his death in 1352, which means he was pope when the first large outbreak of Black Death hit hit Europe in 1348. And he was notable for granting remission of sins to those who, who died of the plague. But he himself survived the plague. So what did he do? Well, Clement consulted his surgeons and he wanted to know, well, what's 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 the plan? OK, mm -hmm. give me a strategy. 
And because many experts believe the bad air was to blame, they recommended, for example, fleeing to the mountains or somewhere else with pure air. But if you're a pope, you can't just run off in the wilderness, can you? So instead, on the advice of his surgeons, Clement barricaded himself inside his palace in Avignon and sat surrounded by torches and fires. constantly burning fires under the belief that fire would somehow clean or purify the air. It would get these bad vapors out of it. And whether or not the method had anything to do with it, Clement survived the plague. Huh. I mean, it's kind of ironic, too, given that the the first uh, um, bit of advice, go into the middle of nowhere, Mm -hmm. was probably pretty good advice as well. Right. uh, Assuming that this was was definitely a case of bubonic plague, that it was an illness. Plague fleas. Plague fleas on on rats that are living in in a a cramped urban environment. Yeah, it would make sense to become a, a... a hermit pope in the woods. But I love this idea. This is an amazing image, the Pope of Fire. Yeah. The hermit Pope of Fire barricaded in his castle, surrounded by fire at all times, sitting locked in this flaming court. Because he's essentially making his court Mars, right? Yeah. His, 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 his environment is the Mars that is burning away the vapors that would otherwise invade his uh, his abode and his body. Yeah, so for the rest of the episode today, we're going to be exploring this idea of the miasma hypothesis, or as it's often called, miasma theory. We just recently had some discussions online about use of the word theory and oh, hypothesis, yes, yes. so I'm sure it's not possible to to do it always right here, but, uh, but it's often called miasma theory, even though it's not a very well-evidenced theory. <laughs> All right, well let's 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 jump into the miasma. Let us allow the miasma to roll over us and uh, and hopefully it won't turn us inside out or anything. Okay. Oh yeah, that fog. That yeah. Just one sniff of that fog and you're inside out. You know, I could I couldn't help but think of our various fictions about fogs that turn you inside out or or fogs that contain either uh space monsters or pirate zombies. Uh we have a, a lot of uh interesting cultural ideas about the dangers of uh of strange, uh, uh, gaseous bodies moving into our habitats. Well, there are good reasons to be afraid of fog. Yeah. Uh, well, some types of fog. I mean, there was like the great smog that killed so many people in London. Yeah. That's just through, you know, breathing bad particulates and stuff. But also, of course, it's a driving hazard and all that. I guess these are features of the modern world, not well, so true. much the medieval world. Oh, and if we're talking about the modern world, you also have to consider uh, the Great War, World War One, in which we weaponized uh, various gaseous agents uh, mastering this chemistry of death uh, to to create a very real sort of miasma that would roll in and just yeah. kill you dead, often a, in horrific ways. It's almost like right after miasma theory became obsolete, we started actually creating real miasmas. But we're getting ahead of ourselves here. So going back to history, throughout much of history, especially in the medieval period through like the mid-19th century in Europe, many supposed experts were absolutely convinced that the cause of the spread of disease was not tiny organisms, not germs, but the inhalation of something called night air or just bad air. Uh, there are a million different names for it. The miasma containing the miasmata. So it was known as the miasma theory of disease. Miasma coming from a Greek word that means to soil, corrupt or pollute. Yeah, and this was a this was a cornerstone. This is this wasn't just yeah. a popular uh, idea of the time. This was the cornerstone upon which a lot of uh, additional understanding of the natural world was based. Yeah, this is what many experts believed, and the idea was so influential in the history of epidemiology and and study of disease that it still lingers in some of our modern terminology. Like, think about the roots of the word malaria. Hmm. Mal meaning bad. Area meaning air. The word malaria is made right out of the concept that the disease was caused by being exposed to certain types of air. Now, of course, we know today that malaria is a protozoan parasite. It's spread by mosquito bites. It gets in the blood. In fact, Charles Louis Alphonse Laveran, the French physician who discovered the fact that malaria was caused by a parasitic organism in the blood, hated the word malaria, uh, which in light of his discoveries, he considered to be totally an unscientific word that you shouldn't use. Instead, he liked the term paludism, meaning uh, that's from Latin palace, uh, meaning swamp or marsh, making it some, mean something more like marsh disease or swamp syndrome. Okay. 
Uh, and in fact, paludisma is still the French word for the disease. So at least a local victory for him on that front. Yeah, but here we are still like propagating miasma theory every time we say malaria. Huh. Uh, but some scholars believe the bad air. So like, where did the bad air come from? We've heard the idea that it was astrological forces in the heavens, but there was also this idea that the bad air lay inside the earth or in the soil or in the water. And they thought it could be released by volcanic eruptions or earthquakes or other types of things. In fact, there's a great passage where Shakespeare writes about the astrological version of the, uh, of the miasma and Troilus and Cressida, where he says, quote, a planetary plague when Jove, meaning the planet Jupiter, will or some high-viced city hang his poison in the sick air when the planets in evil mixture to disorder wander, what plagues, what portents, what mutiny, what raging of the sea, shaking of earth, commotion in the winds, frights, changes, horrors, diverting crack, rend and deracinate the unity and married calm of states quite from their fixture. Ooh, nice. It's a total unity of destructive forces here, right? So he's combining this kind of like political chaos and disruption with the idea that the planet Jupiter will do something to the air to put vapors in it and poison people and bring plagues. But the most common version we see throughout history is not so much the idea that it's something deep in the earth that gets released or something that gets, you know, ported down from the sky from Jupiter or Mars or Jupiter and Mars interacting. But it's the idea that the particles in the air, the miasma are caused by decay. It's decomposition. Any rotting or decomposing organic matter was believed by miasma theorists to release these tiny particles of pollution or miasmata, which could be identified by the presence of a foul smell. In fact, this idea was so influential uh, that there were places where there was this miasma that it informed things like where you would put cities. Mm. Like the first century B.C. Roman architect Vitruvius wrote a treatise on architecture, including a section on how to cite the founding of a new town. And he took miasma theory into consideration as a public health concern when thinking about where you should put your towns. He wrote, quote, in setting out the walls of a city, the choice of a healthy situation is of the first importance. It should be on high ground, neither subject to fogs nor rains. Its aspects should be neither violently hot nor intensely cold, but temperate in both respects. The neighborhood of a marshy place must be avoided. For in such a site, the morning air, uniting with the fogs that rise in the neighborhood, will reach the city with the rising sun, and these fogs and mists, charged with the exhalation of the finny animals, will diffuse an unwholesome effluvia over the bodies of the inhabitants and render the place pestilent. Well, that's just common sense. But again, we, we, given the idea that this was a kind of a cornerstone understanding of the world. And you can definitely see, I mean, even, even Laveran wanted it to be called, wanted malaria to be called something like marsh sickness or swamp disease, mm -hmm. not because he thought it was caused by bad air coming off the swamps, but knew that it was, you know, where these mosquitoes that deliver the disease dwell, that it uh, is most likely to infect you. So there, they were identifying some kind of relevant factors there. It is probably good if you are taking public health into consideration not to build your city in a swamp or next to a marsh where it's going to be having all these mosquitoes come in to give you the marsh fever, but they didn't have the mechanism correctly identified. All right. On that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue to discuss uh, the history of miasma theory. All right, we're back. So I, I wonder if miasma beliefs might be older than history itself, because you find miasma type writings when you go way back into history. It seemed like it was already established, this idea that certain types of air and vapors cause diseases. Like around 400 BCE, the Greek physician Hippocrates was writing about malaria, which was, as we've said, was already, you know, named after bad air. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was known by many different names back then, such as like the marsh fevers or the agues. And in a text called On Airs, Waters and Places, Hippocrates wrote about how certain environments and seasons carried air that could communicate different diseases. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think 
I think it's something worth driving home is that uh, the truthiness of the theory does seem to closely align with our basic instincts to feel disgust and avoid certain odors, at least until the source of those odors are better understood. I mean, don't hang around the latrine fields is solid advice. Right. We're repelled, uh, and that repulsion serves as a sort of physiological safety net. Uh, but the bad air that communicates to us the potential dangers of such a place are not necessarily the cause of the danger. Right. It's sort of like blaming your phone for all the robocalls you're getting. Science, you know, often challenges us to to think in a way that goes beyond the evolved reactions of the biological human. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Blaming the air is kind of a shooting the messenger thing. Yeah, it is. But of course, as, as we've been discussing here, this was an idea that, that not only gained traction, but remained in play for a very long period of time. Yeah. Uh, I was reading uh, from a book titled The Scented Ape, The Biology and Culture of Human Odor by David <laughs> Michael Stoddart. Okay. And uh, the author in this points uh, uh, to the uh, the idea that bad odors, you know, causing disease. This goes back, uh, he says, uh, through two key physicians. Okay. There's uh, the Arabian physician Avicenna, who lived 980 through 1037, who noted that the odor of urine changed during sickness and could be used to diagnose illness. Hmm. And, and of course, this is sound, but the observation caused others of the time to develop the idea that these odors were the cause of the disease, and their expulsion uh, was the illness leaving the body. So the, the, the strange smell in the urine, that was the, the sickness leaving the patient. Yeah, you can find parallels to this type of thinking in all kinds of things. Like, what about the idea that sometimes illnesses cause diarrhea and vomiting? Mm -hmm. That you could look at that and say, oh, okay, so and so is sick. What we need to do is give them enemas and induce vomiting to purge all that stuff out that's making them sick. Right. But in fact, that doesn't always help somebody who's sick. Most of the time, you don't want to do that. Yeah, you're you're taking. Yeah, you're. you're you're, you're recognizing like an actual bodily function and, a, and the purpose behind that bodily function, but then you're you're taking it too far. You're misunderstanding the cause. Right. Yeah. Uh, now, Stoddard also points to the Greek physician Galen uh, several hundred years earlier, who correctly judged that odors were perceived in the brain, but he also incorrectly judged that they gained direct access, access to the center of the brain via hollow olfactory nerves. Mm -hmm. Despite Aristotle's previous argument that scent receptors were in the lining of the nose, uh, Galen's theory survived for more than a millennium. And uh, Stoddard also points out that English judges as late as the 19th century would still take bunches of sweet-smelling flowers with them on jail visits to ward off jail fever, which was what they called typhus. Uh, but typhus, uh, incidentally, is caused by a bacterium spread by body lice, fleas, or chiggers. Oh, back to the yeah. plague. Yeah, So, but it's a, another example of people even uh, in the 19th century still having a, a miasmic understanding, or at least on a, a superficial level, oh. um, uh, of disease. No, miasma theory was still absolutely mm -hmm. in full swing in Europe in the 19th century. I mean, it wasn't till late in the 19th century that we really, we, we really got a beat down on it. Now, in researching this, I also looked back to Virginia Smith's excellent book, Clean, A History of Personal Hygiene and Purity, mm -hmm. which is a fabulous read. She basically, throughout the book, charts how humans have always had this this understanding of what is personal hygiene and then what is sort of moral or spiritual hygiene uh, and and how these become just intertangled throughout history. Yeah, cleanliness is godliness. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's a, a delightful book uh, along those lines. But she talks a little bit about uh, miasma, the idea that it's was seen by the Greeks as this this dirt that caused disease, the dirt of destruction. Uh, and it could be supposedly generated in any place at any time for any divine reason, but was generally associated with like a foul setting, you know, be it a a place of the dead or a place of uh, of decay. And uh, the Greeks believed that these seeds of disease or miasmin, quote, wafted down from the outer universe in billowing clouds of, pol of polluted air. Wow. And whatever it touched, it stained. And the staining of a fabric was a key example of the process. And uh, I, b I believe we, we've already mentioned that the Greek word uh, uh, miano is even defined as, uh, you know, as you know, to dye with another color, to stain, uh, as well as to uh, defile, pollute, sully, contaminate to soil, but also to defile with sins. Again, yeah. coming back to that idea that 
humans cannot help but uh, complicate their understanding of bodily, physical, or even uh, biological cleanliness with some sort of a, a moral or spiritual uh, component. Yeah, we've always got this metaphor in our language, don't we? I mean, mm-hmm. I, I am soiled with sin. Yeah. I'm going to get clean. I'm going to cleanse myself. Uh it's it's very difficult to to separate the two. And with I mean putting a third thing in there with health. Mm-hmm. Get a clean bill of health. Yeah. Or like or if you have an addiction or something people might say I'm going to get clean. Yeah, interesting this trifecta of uh of health, of hygiene and of moral rectitude. Yeah. Yeah, think clean thoughts. Well, you know, without realizing, yeah, you can you can have very dirty thoughts that are extremely hygienic. It's it's entirely possible. <laughs> now, as we've been exploring and will continue to explore, uh, European thinkers really went whole hog on miasma theory. Yeah. But it's not confined to Europe. This is a thinking that's common throughout the world. Uh, there was miasma thinking in ancient China. There's miasma thinking in India. It's something that's very natural, I think, for people to conclude, and thus I think is almost maybe a cultural universal. Well, it it, it really begins to feel like a necessary step. You know, if, if this were a civilization video game or mm-hmm. or say, a, you know, a science fiction novel, like something from Ian M. Banks, it would seem like that would be a necessary stage of development that a culture would have to go through before they got to the germ theory of disease. And I think we should point out that um, it wasn't always throughout history that you had this uh, misguided miasma hypothesis against a clear and correct germ theory contagion hypothesis. Sometimes the options seem to be you had a miasma theory of disease in which epidemics were spread ambiently through the air and a contagion theory of disease where epidemics were spread by physical contact. Most of the time, neither of these is exactly correct, but mm-hmm. each one has got a part of the truth, right? Right, and and it's realizing that something is happening in the physical world, be it with uh, uh, you know physical touch or it's mm-hmm. conveyed through the, the the vapors and the gases around us. Yeah, but by the 17th uh, century, uh, as pointed out by by Smith, uh, miasma theory was quote held to be true beyond doubt. Again, it was a cornerstone of science. Uh, though the actual arcana and mechanisms had yet to be found. But but she adds that there were, there were at least uh, th- three things you can point to that, that show how the uh, how miasma theory is remaining alive. She says that uh, Venetian uh, physician Santorio Santorio, who lived... Uh, He's a Josh and Chuck favorite. Oh, yeah, is he? Yeah, they're, okay. they're into him. I can't remember which one called him the, the guy so nicely named him twice. Ah, well, yeah. Santorio, Santorio, 1561 through 1636. So he'd proven that the body breathed out a miasma of perspiration. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you also had chemists uh, discovering gases, even though they had not yet discovered oxygen. And scientists were in the process of discovering that plants breathed as well. Hmm. But, of course, this wasn't just about figuring out how the world worked. It was also about combating the plague. And if you've ever seen a plague doctor mask... Uh, which I'll, I'll make sure to in- at least include an image of, of uh, an illustration of this on the landing page for this episode of StuffToBlowYourMind.com. Yeah. If you look at one of these masks, you can see the emphasis put on air circulation. Man, no sketchy website is complete without some clip art of a plague doctor mask. <laughs> you know what I, I mean? It's yeah. like that's like the stock photo that's like in every creepy corner of the internet is the plague doctor mask. I know, and there are only so many like widely distributed illustrations of it that, on one level, they be, they begin to feel less special, uh-huh. and yet every time I look at one, at one, I I still get wrapped up in the excitement of everything that's going on with it. Well, it is really interesting to plumb the frame of mind that designed it, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's essentially a hazmat suit uh, for uh, the plague years. To avoid bad smells. Yeah. So as uh, Stoddart points out in The Centidate, uh, these were doctors who wore long leather coats rubbed with beeswax. They wore gloves and long bird-like masks. And the masks themselves, the snout of it, uh, was filled with, with herbs and dried petals. And then they used a cane to probe the patient's armpits and groin for signs of infection. <laughs> and they used a sounding stick so they could listen to the patient's pulse without actually coming into physical contact. Uh-huh. Now, uh, my understanding, though, this would 
This would differ depending on who you were examining. If you were examining a peasant versus examining royalty. So you wouldn't necessarily, you know, poke the king with the stick, but you would definitely right. poke the peasant. So like if Pope Clement VI were to maybe wonder if he had the plague and had a physician come in and look with look at him, he wouldn't have put up with the stick. Right, right. right. Yeah, you would get a stick-free uh, evaluation. Uh, sometimes there were scented substances in the tip of that uh, stick or cane. And uh, I've also read that the bird-like appearance of the plague doctor uh, may be why we sometimes call a bad doctor a quack, hmm. because they look like a duck. Um, but, it, yeah, it's all about distancing the nose uh, from the smell. Uh, and another uh, controversial treatment method of the day, if we can call it a, a treatment, was, quote, aerial quarantine. So you don't want your home to catch plague? Simply box it up, shutting out all the, the plague air like it's uh, Night of the Living Dead and you just want to keep the evil out. Okay. Uh, and then you can just purify it with good odors within. It's kind of basically what uh, what we were talking about earlier with the, with the Pope of Fire. Yeah, and some some of the things you read about where people went to – I don't know why. I was about to say great lengths. Not – Actually, great lengths, kind of normal lengths mm-hmm. to avoid the night air was like they'd close all the windows at night. Yeah. You know, because you didn't want that bad night air getting in. Yeah. But at the same time, it was still obvious to uh, many people of the day that sealing up a body of air didn't necessarily seem to help matters. Uh, and, and since 17th century writers had observed that a change of air was helpful. Um, you know, I think we've we've all encountered situations where we are boxed in somewhere with a bad smell, be it a smelly dog in a car mm-hmm. or a, uh, a, a you know, a, a, a very small child with a soiled diaper in a closed room mm-hmm. and changing the air. A, a, change a podcast the air studio or a, some, yeah, uh, a podcast where some studio. sweaty hosts have been in there for a few hours before you. Exactly. Yeah. Some a circulation of the air is uh, is sometimes desirable. And uh, and they were not blind to this. You know, they. They too had experienced uh, uh, sweaty rooms and uh, and, and soiled uh, infants before. Can you imagine how rough it'd be for a miasma theorist at like a festival or concert outdoors <laughs> where you got to go use the porta johns, oh. but uh, you know, like you got to hold your breath the entire time you're in there, or you'll get the plague. I don't know. That is an interesting question. What would a, a denizen of the 17th century make of a modern porta potty? I feel, depending on who you ask, in some cases they might think this is amazing. This is this is a, a, a vision of the future I I didn't even dare hope for. Uh, whereas other porta potties, they might say, "Yeah, this is this is horrible. Why would you use the restroom here and not behind that tree over there?" All right, so I guess we need to discuss what happened to miasma theory. Like, how did it go away? Yeah, like I mean, is generally what seems to be the case is that you have new science that comes along and knocks uh, a, a a previous theory uh, out of contention. Yes. Now, there was no single cause for the demise of miasma theory. As we said, it was sort of um, one side of a long-running and confusing debate where the different sides would sort of bleed into each other. But it got chipped away at by many lines of evidence over the centuries. One of the greatest and most important final blows to miasma theory came from the work of an English doctor and epidemiologist named Jon Snow. Not to be confused with Game of Thrones, Jon Snow. Right. Spelled but, differently. John with an H. Right. But still a hero. Very much so. Jon Snow is a cool guy uh, from history. He, So I've uh, got a couple of sources I'm going to be referring to uh, for the story of Jon Snow. One is an article called Jon Snow, M.D., Anesthetist to the Queen of England and Pioneer Epidemiologist by Michael A.E. Ramsey. And the other is an article by Stephen Halliday from 2001 from the British Medical Journal. So these are about the life of Jon Snow. So Jon Snow was born in March 1813 in the city of York in northern England, and he was the oldest of nine children. His father was a manual laborer, and his family lived in Micklegate, which was one of the poorest and most unsanitary parts of York at the time. People who lived there got their water from natural sources like wells or from the two nearby rivers, which were the Swale and the Ooze. Oh, well, that doesn't that doesn't sound good. Not like TMNT Ooze, uh, but it's still O-U-S-E. Oh, well, OK. But it, it sounds like Secret of the Ooze. Yeah. But have you ever seen a turtle get down? 
I have uh, at the zoo, but not uh, not in the way that, that you mean it. OK. Uh, anyway, unfortunately, this water that the people of Micklegate were getting at the time was often just filthy. It contained waste and runoff from, quote, uh, and uh, as, as Ramsey says, quote, market squares, cesspools, cemeteries and dung hills. Mm. So just imagine your water goes through all that before you get it to drink. Ah, the delicious necro water. Yeah. So Snow became apprentice to a surgeon apothecary in 1827, and he enrolled in the Hunterian School of Medicine in London. Uh, while he was there, he also got experience working at Westminster Hospital, which had a problem, actually. The hospital had what's known as a dead room, where students could perform post-mortem dissections of patients who died in the wards. Unfortunately, a lot of the students who performed these dissections would get sick. Eventually, Snow was able to figure out through experiments what was going on. What was making the medical students sick was not the bodies themselves, but a preservative used to keep them from decaying, arsenic. The bodies were embalmed with arsenic, then the students performed the dissections, they inhaled arsenic vapor, and then they got sick. So Snow's research led to different preservation practices for cadavers, but it also was the end of uh, it also led to the end of the manufacture of candles made with arsenic, which apparently burned very brightly, but put off toxic arsenic fumes. Oh, man. Other claims to fame. After Snow completed his medical education in London in the 1830s and 40s, he became an expert in respiration and asphyxiation, and he also became one of the world's leading anesthetists, studying the medical use of ether and chloroform to anesthetize people for surgery. Uh, Snow played a very important role leading to the acceptance of anesthetics for pain relief and childbirth. Like at the time, a lot of people thought that it was for some reason immoral for women to have pain relief while giving birth. Mm. This because of the, the, the whole biblical uh, description, right, of the punishment uh, of it, Eve. It seems like there was a link there. Like mm. leaders of the Anglican Church preached against pain relief for, for women in childbirth from the pulpit. Uh. But then Ramsey writes, quote, however, on April 7th, 1853, Queen Victoria asked Jon Snow to administer chloroform analgesia for the delivery of her eighth child, Prince Leopold. This was such a success that it was repeated for the delivery of Princess Beatrice three years later. Obstetrical anesthesia now had the royal blessing and medical and religious acceptance soon followed. But Jon Snow's real claim on history came the interaction between miasma theory, germ theory, and cholera. So the first pandemic of Asian cholera in England occurred in Newcastle in 1831 while Jon Snow was working as a surgeon's apprentice. And the second pandemic of Asian cholera hit London in the fall of 1848. Now, the prevailing theory about the spread of cholera at the time was sort of a mixture of a dash of contagion theory with a huge helping of miasma theory. Basically, most people at the time believed that cholera was an infection that spread through particles disseminated ambiently in the air, which would then settle in the atmosphere in low-lying areas. And proponents of miasma theory laid blame for the disease on workers in industries that produce nasty odors, including slaughterhouses, rendering plants, and as uh, as Ramsey notes, quote, bone merchants. Hmm. And the miasma theory of disease was not the only odd idea about the power of smells in Victorian Britain. For example, Professor H. Booth, writing in Builder in 1844, wrote, quote, from inhaling the odor of beef, the butcher's wife obtains her obesity. <laughs> Well, that, that seems quite a stretch. But Halliday actually uh, notes a lot of interesting beliefs about miasma theory at the time, and especially about bad smells. So Sir Francis Head, he notes, was a colonial governor who served in Canada. And in 1842, Head argued that, quote, some settlements in the Americas had been rendered dangerous by the plowing of virgin soil, which had exposed decaying vegetable matter and the miasms that rose from it. Huh. Uh, also in 1842, the English social and public health reformer Edwin Chadwick, who lived from 1800 to 1890, he wrote uh, an 1842 report on the sanitary condition of the laboring population of Great Britain. So Chadwick wanted to make people's lives better. He was a social reformer. But he argued that what we should do is improve sewage and drainage systems in housing to remove dangerous foul smells. He later told a parliamentary committee in 1846, quote, 
all smell is, if it be intense, immediate acute disease. <laughs> and eventually we may say that by depressing the system and rendering it susceptible to the action of other causes, all smell is disease. Oh, wow. Again, shooting the messenger here. Yeah. So in 1890, at a Royal Society of the Arts meeting on sewage and waste disposal, Chadwick gave a talk and the builder, the same magazine, again reported, quote, Sir Edwin concluded his somewhat prolix communication by <laughs> by advocating the bringing down of a fresh air from a height by means of such structures as the Eiffel Tower <laughs> and distributing it warmed and fresh in our buildings. <laughs> now, wouldn't that be a great addition to our public health infrastructure? I would like towers to suck the sky air down. <laughs> I'm surprised I haven't seen. Maybe I have seen this and just haven't uh, zeroed in on the detail. But you see these sort of these 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 older visions of an advanced future with archaic flying machines and yeah. towers. Uh -huh. uh, I, I wonder if this uh, works its way into any of those visions. You know, the use of towers to grab clean air and bring it back down for the masses. Yeah, would that show up in like H.G. Wells or something? I don't know. I'm, I'm going to have to look at. Particularly some of the, the French illustrations, again, it might show up there. Well, at least here you can see a departure from the ideas that we talked about earlier, like during the plague, where they thought that maybe bad, noxious air would come down from outer space or yeah. from the planets or something. Here the idea is that the bad air is low-lying and it settles in low-lying areas. What you need to do is bring down fresh, clean air from up above to sort of air it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the unfortunate side effects of Chadwick's proposal, I mean, obviously, nobody's going to pr really protest the idea of removing sewage from the houses and stuff. That seems right. like a good idea. But Chadwick's proposal uh, led to the idea that foul-smelling waste should be efficiently funneled away from houses and neighborhoods and down to the river, oh. from which many people were still drawing their water. Ah, so and in, this, and they're trying to prevent cholera. Exactly. Yeah. So we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, in 1844, the physician Neil Arnott, uh, who lived uh, 1788 to 1874, told a royal commission, quote, the immediate and chief cause of many of the diseases which impair the bodily and mental health of the people and bring a considerable proportion prematurely to the grave is the poison of atmospheric impurity arising from the accumulation in, in and around their dwellings of the decomposing remnants of the substances used for food and from the impurities given out of their own bodies. So he's saying human excrement and rotting food waste release particles into the air that when breathed in are the cause of disease. And crazily enough, Florence Nightingale was even convinced <laughs> of the miasmata. She believed that scarlet fever, measles, and smallpox could all be caused by bad odors, especially those emanating up from the drains underneath housing. And mm. she tried to encourage good health by making hospitals sweet-smelling. Huh. I think sweet-smelling medical facilities are kind of disturbing, actually. You don't want to smell a sweet smell. I think medical facilities should smell like cucumbers. It's like when you encounter a, you know, a really obnoxious air freshener, you know? Yeah. It's, um, it, it, it can be almost like a chemical assault on, right. on your senses. And then also there is the question, what is this covering up? This was deployed for some reason, and it's probably horrible. But anyway, so all this stuff was in the air, right? All, all in the air, so to speak. The mm -hmm. idea of miasmata was everywhere. All the, pretty much all the experts believed in it. But John Snow was not convinced because he'd done a lot of work with inhaled things, right? So he'd worked closely on cases where people were subject to toxic inhalants. He even worked on a case where a young woman died from an overdose of chloroform from a rag because it hadn't been administered properly. And uh, from his experience with arsenic vapors and all that, he knew that the the potency of airborne toxins was directly linked to their concentration in the immediate vicinity of the victim. If slaughterhouses and bone merchants and all the other sources of waste and food waste and animal parts and stuff like that, if that was what was producing the miasma that caused the disease, shouldn't the people closest to these places and the people who worked in them be the most affected by the disease? Yeah, the, the bone merchants would be the ones that were the, like essentially wiped out by cholera. Yeah, 
And yet Snow noticed this was not the case. So to prove his case, he gathered evidence showing that cholera could only infect someone if they swallowed, quote, morbid matter from an infected person, often meaning particles of their excrement, particles of their poop. So essentially he showed that the disease was at least partially waterborne and and. What did this evidence consist of? Well, Snow put together a geographical model of cholera infection in London by determining how many people had died from the disease in 32 different sub-districts of the city. And he found in the first instance that families who drew their water from sources supplied by parts of the Thames River above London, higher upstream, had very few infections of cholera. Whereas people who drew their water from sources supplied by the lower Thames, lower down in the, in the river, where more things had been entering the river above the water source, they had lots of cases of cholera. And the cause for this was that cholera is spread by oral ingestion of fecal matter from other people infected by the disease. So as the sewage produced by cholera patients in London was disposed of, it generally made its way down into the Thames. And then water companies drew the water back from sections of the river directly below that and redistributed the filthy water contaminated with fecal matter to families for drinking and home use. Uh, and I've got this great illustration here in the year 1850, the magazine Punch <laughs> published a cartoon of what they thought a drop of the water from Thames must, from the Thames must look like up, up close, you know? Mm -hmm. well, what do we see here, Robert? Oh, well, it just looks like it's loaded with a sort of a hybrid of cartoon characters and microscopic organisms. Just, it's almost like a, like a Bosch painting. Exactly. That's what of... I was thinking of. Yeah. It's Hieronymus Bosch in a drop of water. I'll try to include this image on the landing page for this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com so that everyone else can see it as well. Yeah. So what was Jon Snow's recommendation for avoiding the cholera outbreaks? It was, can you guess? Draw, clean water. Exactly. Yeah. Draw your water from distant sources, from clean sources far away rather than polluted parts of the river nearby. And Snow's ideas were not initially accepted by everyone. Snow was criticized by miasma theorists. The Lancet ran an article eviscerating his waterborne infection theory. And most experts still favored some version of the explanation from bad air and particles in the air. So then cholera struck London yet again in 1854, and Snow went back to work on it. He conducted more epidemiological research linking rates of cholera infection directly to sources of water. And most famously, he isolated a single water pump on Broad Street as the source of a huge number of cases of cholera and subsequent deaths. Like locals had been complaining that the water coming out of the pump smelled bad, and Snow followed up by collecting information about who who had died from cholera in the Soho area where the pump was, there were a staggering number of cholera deaths centered just around this one water pump. And Snow was able to convince the local board of governors of his theory, and they removed the handle from the Broad Street pump. The local outbreak seemed to go away after this, but Snow's critics argued, well, maybe it had been on the wane anyway, and then the handle was replaced. Halliday writes, quote, Snow's conclusions were dismissed by the members of the Committee of Inquiry appointed by Parliament to inquire into the 1854 cholera epidemic. Commenting on Snow's hypothesis that deaths had resulted from the consumption of contaminated water drawn from the Broad Street pump, the committee concluded, quote, After careful inquiry, we see no reason to adopt this belief. The committee came down firmly in favor of the supposition that the choleraic infection multiplies rather in air than in water. You know, I'm reminded again of Game of Thrones, Jon Snow, because it's yeah. kind of a similar scenario. You know, Jon Snow in Game of Thrones is saying, look, the White Walkers are a threat. You've got to you got to realize this. You've got to do something about it. And they're like, no, 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 that's ridiculous. We know how the world works. And, right. And this is it. And he's coming up against a similar opposition. They're saying, no, 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 um, don't try and rewrite miasma theory. This is the way disease works. Exactly. But unfortunately, and now we know that ultimately Snow was proved right, right. or at least partially right, right. that, that uh, cholera is definitely spread through water, can also be spread through food and other things. But unfortunately, Snow never lived to see his theories gain wide acceptance since he died of a stroke in 1858 at the young age of 45. But we now know that Snow's theory was mostly correct. Cholera is caused by a bacterium, Vibrio cholerae. 
Uh, cholera infects the body by being ingested, as we've said, where it reproduces and creates toxins that attack the gut and cause watery diarrhea. And then this diarrheal discharge is prolific. And of course, it can easily kill a person infected with the disease through dehydration within hours if they're not treated. Lots of people die of cholera. Uh, and the cycle of infection occurs when the infected person's fecal matter gets back into water sources that people drink from or ends up on food that people eat. And uh, fortunately, cholera has been mostly eliminated in wealthier nations through sanitation, sewage disposal and water treatment. But it still affects a lot of the world today. There's still a lot of work to do on cholera. Uh, the WHO cites research from 2015 indicating that there are somewhere between 1.3 to 4 million cases of cholera infection worldwide every year and between 21,000 and 143,000 deaths. So this is like a major world disease. Yeah, it's so easy to take it for granted, uh, especially in in countries like the United States, where generally you're using a if you use bathroom facilities, you are you, you have drinking water coming out of the sink, drinking water coming out of of the shower head, drinking water filling the toilet uh, into which you are uh, going to urinate or defecate. Yeah, and that's actually one of the things that led to the understanding that Snow's theories were correct. Other people began to accept Snow's theory after he died once they saw what a difference it made to, ha to keep drinking water separate from sewage disposal. So in the second half of the 19th century, uh, Snow's theory of cholera and germ theory in general started to get this wide acceptance, and it was due to multiple factors. In Great Britain specifically, Snow's former critics, including the Registrar General William Farr, who'd been a miasma theory guy, he, he later became convinced of the role that water and drainage played in the cholera outbreaks uh, after a subsequent epidemic in 1866, because in the years just before this epidemic, the engineer Sir Joseph Bazalgette's plans for a contained sewer and drainage system had been put in place in a lot of parts of London. Construction was still going on until 1875. But like we were just saying, the main benefit of the sewer system was that it would keep sewage separate from the water supply. And the 1866 epidemic shows that areas that were well-drained did not suffer cholera outbreaks, but neighborhoods with lingering defective drainage were still hit yet again with cholera. Uh, and then also in 1892, Hamburg was struck with cholera, but the now well-drained London was not. And London, of course, stank at the time. In 1892, if you were still thinking maybe it's the stinks that cause cholera, London smelled bad. Uh, Halliday attributes the lingering stink mainly to horse manure and stuff like that in the streets. Huh. Uh, but yeah, it still smelled bad, but people weren't getting cholera anymore because they were keeping their water clean. The, the incoming water was clean and the disposed of water was separately removed. Of course, a bigger part of the puzzle was the increasing isolation and identification of specific microbial life forms with their corresponding diseases, like Vibrio cholerae, uh, identified by Filippo Pacini and later by Robert Koch as the cause of cholera, uh, the identification of Bacillus anthracis by Robert Koch in the 1870s as the cause of anthrax, and so on. Once you could link these individual germs to the diseases they caused, miasma theory didn't have much of a place anymore. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will continue our discussion of miasma theory. All right, we're back. Okay, so we've discussed how miasma theory got finally knocked out. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think about how miasma theory was wrong, but it might have done us a lot of good, right? Yeah, yeah, I think you can certainly make a case for uh, for it being a... You know, perhaps a necessary step in our understanding of the world. Yeah, because specifically, as we've pointed out, versions of the theory that link disease to foul-smelling air would be somewhat useful because air, the matter that causes air to smell foul can itself also carry and allow the growth of harmful bacteria, sewage, dead bodies, spoiled food. Um, and if you think about specific cases, you think about the Pope of Fire, Clement VI, he didn't become infected with the plague. Now, we don't know whether the fire actually saved him. It's possible. Uh, it's impossible to know for sure. But uh, one thing that we would later discover is that you can sterilize your environments with heat. Yeah. And also, as Virginia Smith points out in her book, uh, we do kind of go from obsession with miasma and filth diseases to obsessions with something called auto-intoxication, which I'll get into in a bit, mm -hmm. and uh, an obsession with bacteria living in our bowels. 
and from their interest in bacterial fermentation, which, quote, proves to be a fruitful lead toward germ, germ theory. And, of course, greatly improved microscopes also helped. Uh, but, again, I'm stuck with this idea that this is maybe just a necessary step in the technology tree uh, that uh, that humanity used to get to our modern understanding of, of illness. Yeah. Well, right. wait a minute, but I want to know more about the auto-intoxication. What's oh, this? Oh, so this, is, uh, this was really interesting. I was reading up on this. Uh, auto-intoxication, uh, this peaked as a health buzzword in the 1900s. And as Mary Roach uh, pointed out in her uh, Salon article, Passing Gas, and in her <laughs> excellent book, Gulp, which is all about um, the science of human digestion and the, and the quest for an understanding of how digestion works, uh-huh. uh, it, was a, it was just a natural offshoot of miasma theory. Roach says, quote, If one bought into the dangers of miasmas, it wasn't much of a leap to buy into the dangers of one's own internal sewage. Purveyors of (laughs) laxatives and enema devices played up the connection, referring to the colon as, quote, the human privy, an obstructed sewer and this cesspool of death and contagion. Yeah. So like the idea is that if bad smelling stuff comes out of you, there's bad stuff inside of you and you need to get rid of it as much as possible. Yeah. The poisonous gas was coming from inside the colon. <laughs> For instance, as uh, Dr. Walter C. Alvarez wrote in a 1919 essay in the Journal of the American Medical Association, uh, he wrote that this intuitive sense uh, in this theory really resonated with folks. Quote, mm. they reasoned that if feces are foul, then the body must be in the best condition when freest from such material. And this essay, by the way, he, he this played a big role in turning the tide against um, uh, this idea of auto intoxication. Uh, the, the whole essay is pretty great, but I, I want to read uh, just uh, this bit from the intro. Okay. The caveman of the glacial period and the savage of today would doubtless agree that practically all disease is due to the malevolence of evil spirits. <laughs> the idea constituted the first system of medicine. The next one appeared with the dawn of civilization when men awoke to the possibility that some diseases might arise from spontaneous derangements of the bodily functions, particularly those concerned in excretion. They reason that if feces are foul, then the body must be in the best condition when freest from such material. The idea, which is based on what appears to be an obvious truism, has always been an attractive one, particularly to the lay mind. The ancient Egyptians purged themselves at certain times in the moon cycle, just as many people now take calomel in the spring. For thousands of years, physicians have been in the habit of purging their patients when they have not known what to do. We see then that the present-day dread of stasis and auto-intoxication is nothing new. In the 18th century, the high priest of the cult was was Johann Kampf, who believed that all disease was due to impacted feces. Under his teaching, the use of large medicated enemas became immensely popular, and the apothecaries fattened off the hypochondriacs then, just as the, quote, internal bath specialists do today. Internal bath? Yeah. That is the worst term ever, internal bath. Yeah. So you had this uh, this one company, the the Tyrell Hygienic Institute. Ty the Tyrell yeah. Corp. No has, way has nothing to do with uh, with replicants. Nah, uh, nah, nah, nah. But this was uh, this was uh, 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 the organization uh, created by Charles Alfred Tyrell. Okay, um, he was essentially the colon cleanse expert uh, of the day, uh, and the chief product was the JBL Cascade Colonic Irrigator. JBL, by the way, stood for Joy, Beauty, Life. Wait, isn't that also a brand of speaker? It may be. I don't know if that stands for Joy, Beauty, Life as well, but uh, it it might. It would have a slightly different connotation. Yes, it is. It's a, it's a brand of speakers. Huh. All right. Well, I'll I'll leave uh, our, our listeners to explore what that stands for, unless you have a quick answer for us. Well, I, I don't know. Joy, Beauty, Life? Maybe one product was uh, developed from another, like we're listening to our favorite music through colonic irrigators. <laughs> well, in addition to create, putting out this product, they also put out thousands of promotional pamphlets for doctors to give their patients. 
And not everyone was won over by this fake disease and its fake treatments. And you might well be thinking, hey, isn't this a problem worth sewing a few dog anuses shut over? What? No, I'm not thinking that. (laughs) So uh, it, it was indeed, because as Mary Roach points out, in 1922, quote, physician and auto intoxication doubter Arthur Donaldson artificially and incontrovertibly constipated three dogs by temporarily sewing shut their anus. That is horrible. And uh, in this experiment, he observed, quote, no physical symptoms beyond a mild loss of appetite occurred, and there was no internal poisoning. He also checked their blood. And so this provided uh, some uh, additional ammo against this idea of auto-intoxication, which itself was a child of miasma. And I might add that this is a, a child of miasma that is that still lives in our world. You will still see plenty of... Uh, of, uh, of of agents of Tyrell at work uh, in the world oh, around us. You mean all the like the su- pseudoscience in the cleanse culture? Yeah, and uh, filth building up in the colon and becoming. This is the kind of thing that I find that I, I encounter in uh, in little clickbait uh, images at the bottom mm-hmm. of various blog posts. Yeah, where it's like this famous actress removed this from her colon and now she will live to you know be 150 that sort of thing yeah yeah and it's some sort of grotesque picture that you still feel uh obligated to click on just to figure out what you're looking at and then you find no answers in the in the the clickbait content of course cleanse your toxins yeah so that's auto intoxication in a nutshell if you want to know more about that again i highly recommend uh mary roach's salon article or her Uh, book gulp it's it's miasma theory on the inside yeah so there you have it, miasma theory in a nutshell. I would say one thing you should take away from this episode is if you are lucky enough to have access to clean water that is separate from your sewage disposal system, you should recognize that this is a thing that you're very fortunate to experience. You should be thankful for it. It's something we take for granted in our lives, but it's a huge part of what makes like city life livable. Indeed. All right, if you want more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you know where to go. Head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is the mothership. That's where you'll find all our episodes. Going back to the very beginning, you'll find blog posts and links out to our various social media accounts, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. On Facebook, you will also find that discussion group, uh, the discussion module, where you can engage with uh, with Joe and myself, as well as various other listeners uh, who have uh, lots of intriguing thoughts on topics we are discussing, Topics we should discuss, uh, etc. Oh yes. So big thanks as always to our audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. And if you want to get in touch with us to let us know feedback on this episode or any other, or to let us know a topic you'd like to like us to do in the future, uh, to just say hi, just let us know what you like about the show. Uh, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.